Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Greg Flesher, president and CEO of Verneo Pharmaceuticals. Thanks for joining us today, Greg. Thank you for inviting me, Raul. Wonderful. So Greg, to kick us off and to set the stage for the rest of the conversation, talk to us about how you got interested in biotech, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. I'm a Midwestern guy by birth, <laughs> grew up in Indiana and had always been interested in the biological sciences. And like many young adults was trying to contemplate going on to graduate school or going on to medical school. And graduate school ended up being the path for me. I kind of moved down a path of learning about drug development and early in my graduate education was fortunate enough to be working with an associate professor who was actually an adjunct professor and a full-time employee at Eli Lilly in Indianapolis. And so I was able to use a lot of really interesting equipment, research equipment as a graduate student. And as a mentor, he directed me towards the pharmaceutical industry. I entered the industry in the mid nineties as a clinical research associate, which is sort of an entry level drug developer that works with protocols and studies, design and execution. And coming out of academia and bench research and going into clinical development is a really exciting thing because you now get to see how a drug gets manufactured and actually delivered in a clinical trial setting. It really gave me the desire and hunger then to sort of follow the drug along its path. And over the last almost 28 years now, I've been at six different companies, both large and small, and I've seen pretty much all aspects of drug development, drug commercialization, and aspects of this industry in general. And it's just something that wakes me up every morning and keeps me excited. And Greg, talk to us a little bit about your experience coming up in biotech. You, know, you worked at some larger companies, how those experiences informed what came next and how you think about for folks that are up and coming in biotech, starting off in big pharma or big biotech versus early stage companies. Yeah, I think my path, again, was large pharma at first, starting at Eli Lilly in the mid-1990s. Like most large pharmaceutical companies that are quite structured and have a lot of history, Lilly is a great training ground, and many of the large pharmaceutical companies are. So if you're fresh out of school and looking to get into the industry, coming into a large organization where they have structure and training and formalized process is a very good way to spend the first four or five years of your career for me, in the academic setting, I knew you end up becoming a scientist or a physician, and I didn't quite understand that there's other things you can do with a scientific education that are really helpful and meaningful in society. And when I went to Eli Lilly and I was trained as a clinical drug developer, I was fortunate enough to see a program through its late stage of development and through FDA interactions and through approval and then working side by side with the commercial organization to plan the launch and the education and the training and then follow this product into its commercial lifetime, it woke something up in me. It made me want to see the broader aspect of drug development. And after I left Lilly on a path that lasted about 15 years, I kind of moved from very large companies to mid-sized companies where you could see more and be more engaged across the board. And then most recently in the companies of less than a couple hundred employees, where you're really involved on a day-to-day -day basis with every aspect of clinical, regulatory, medical, commercial development. I'm working with thought leaders, key opinion leaders, 
raising capital and doing all the things you do to make a small company survive. So the small company aspect just for me was exciting as you get to see a lot more. And becoming with a fundamental training of a large pharmaceutical company was really the basis of which how I started my career and really how I plan to get the basic foundational understanding of this industry. And this is your second time being CEO, Greg. I'm curious, as you approached the job the first time versus approaching the job the second time, talk to us about how you think you operate differently and also just how you approach the role now the second time around versus when you were first time CEO. That's a really good question. The first time that anyone's a CEO of an organization, I think, is quite a transition because you develop your career becoming an expert in one or more areas or becoming proficient in one or more areas. And you're the doer most of the time and you're delivering the product most of the time. And as in many larger organizations, as you move up the ranks in seniority, you do less on a day-to-day hands-on basis and you manage really talented people and help them remove their barriers and make sure they have the resources. And so I think in my first time experience as CEO in 2015, I was probably too much in the weeds of my really talented people. And I think it bothered them because nobody likes their boss breathing down their throat and managing every aspect of the business. Where I thought I was helpful, I think it caused tension and stress to really talented people. I actually saw this as an area for development. Actually, in my first role as CEO, I got an executive coach. And I spent a lot of time learning how to be a strategic, visionary leader and helping people to excel in their positions and not necessarily over have oversight in their position. In my second role, I think now as CEO, the one thing that has been really helpful is I have a talent team of people around me in their own rights. They all know more than I will ever know within their respective areas. And I spend most of my time helping them decide among the options that they want to do, remove their barriers and sort of develop their team. So I'm more of a consultant to them as opposed to a day-to-day manager of all their tasks. Yes. And there's the emotional aspects and the ups and downs of being a CEO. How have you evolved in terms of handling the ups and downs of being a CEO, part one? And then I think that's also amplified when you're a CEO of a biotech, given the inherent risk in drug development. So would love to understand any learnings you're willing to share about your own personal journey and dealing with the emotions of it. Yeah, you hit on the head, lots of ups and downs in this industry, clinical setbacks, regulatory setbacks, your share price falling through the floor when you're thinking about raising money. There's oh so many things that happen in this industry. And I think learning to be a little more even keel, knowing these things will happen and recognizing there's always options. There's no one answer to any one solution is a really, really helpful outcome. For my management style, I try to be fairly open with the entire organization on all levels. I don't want to candy coat things, so to speak, or hide them from the organization. I want them to understand, at least to some degree, what's happening and what we're thinking about in the solutions, because there's nothing worse than making a strategic shift or a portfolio decision or a major hiring or firing decision on a program without others being somewhat involved in the process. Not everyone can be involved in the process, but having them at least understand what the options you're dealing with so they understand that it's not just a rash decision. Great. Thanks for sharing that and reflecting a bit on your own journey. Before we get into the work that you're pursuing now at Reneo, would love if you could educate us on the rare mitochondrial disease space and what drew Reneo to it and also the the opportunities and challenges 
within that space. Sure. As a reminder, most of your listeners probably are aware all human cells have mitochondria within them and many copies of the mitochondria. Like skeletal muscle may have several thousand copies of the mitochondria and their purpose is to metabolize the foods we eat and convert it into ATP or adenosine triphosphate, which is the core energy source for cellular life, for human life. And our energy needs on a daily basis increase and decrease by the level of activity that we do. There are certain tissue or organ systems that need a lot of energy all the time, our skeletal muscle, our cardiac muscle, our brain. And these tissues demand that you eat that you create energy. And if you don't give cells energy when they need it, they go under stress and they die. It's a complex set of machinery that is required to metabolize sugars or carbohydrates, lipids, fatty acids, to bring things out of your bloodstream or out of your adipose tissue and metabolize them and, and utilize them as energy. And it requires a set of genes that are in the nucleus of cells and all the genes that are in the mitochondria themselves. So a lot of genes producing a lot of enzymes and proteins that shuttle nutrients across membranes or metabolize them when they're within the mitochondria. And there are dozens and dozens of genetic diseases in which there's single point mutations or large deletions of base pairs or alterations in base pairs that will render a portion of your mitochondria non-functional. So they cannot produce ATP. And in this situation, you have what's called a genetic myopathy, meaning I can live a very sedentary lifestyle, but if I have an increase in energy demands, I often cannot meet those and it results in a host of morbidities and unfortunately mortalities as well. So a lot of patients with mitochondrial, genetic mitochondrial disease succumb to their condition in adolescence or childhood and don't make it to adulthood. And those unfortunately that do make it to adulthood sometimes have a very difficult life and in some cases not a very long life. The reason is the food you're consuming is not efficiently being converted to energy. And again, getting up and walking around is fine but trying to carry a job and taking care of a family and doing your chores around the house and doing day-to-day -day living is not something that people with mitochondrial diseases can do. We have a drug that we're working on. It's a PPAR Delta agonist. It's one of a few that are in development. We are the most advanced. We've generated the greatest set of data so far in mitochondrial disease. In fact, some of the most stellar data I've seen in the industry. Our drug modality is very interesting. It is turning on a natural pathway in your body. PPAR delta biology in your body is what is responsive to exercise and repetitive physical activity. If you exercise regularly, your body produces PPAR delta ligand, which in turn causes your body to shift from sugar metabolism or glucose metabolism to fatty acid metabolism, so aerobic respiration. That's why we all get thin when we work out on a regular basis. We're consuming fats. This pathway can be turned on through agonists. In fact, we have one agonist a novel agonist that we're developing. It's an oral therapy. But the belief or the theory is that by taking this product on a daily basis for the rest of your life, you'll be able to amplify the ATP production in your healthy mitochondria so that that patient can live a normal life. They, their tissues won't undergo stress. They won't have tissue failure or organ failure, and they'll be able to live their life out normally. And talk to us a little bit about the complexities of working in the rare disease space that folks that haven't been exposed to the space may not comprehend. Sure. Rare disease drug development is a very different environment. So I've worked in oncology. I've worked in pulmonology. I've worked in nephrology. I've worked in a whole host of indications. This is my first role in a rare disease drug development company. 
So operationally, by default, a rare disease is uh, a condition, for example, in the United States that occurs in 200,000 or less patients in the United States. And as you can imagine, not all patients with a disease are ever going to be eligible to run in a clinical trial. And those patients are scattered amongst a large geography. So when you want to run a clinical trial in a orphan disease and you want to, say, enroll 100 patients across the United States and you want to enroll the study in a reasonable period of time, meaning maybe 18 or 24 months, it's often quite difficult to find the patients and find them diagnosed and have the right patient, the right fit, and the right center. So finding patients is difficult to do at times. And depending on the stage of their disease, usually when you study drugs, as you know, you don't want people at the end of their life. You don't want people you can't help. And you don't want people that are so early in their disease that you can't see a treatment effect in a six-month study or a 12-month study. So finding those right patients, particularly in rare diseases, is quite challenging. Our indication occurs in about 60 to 80,000 people in the United States. So I call it a mid-size orphan disease. And our pivotal study, which is almost fully enrolled, has taken us almost two years to enroll. So that gives you an idea of the complexities and the cost and the time involved, as you can imagine, putting together contract research organizations and manufacturers and distributors of your drug product and all the electronic data capture systems and a lot of the diagnostic testing and laboratory work. It's quite complex. It's not that way for all indications, for all therapeutic areas, but definitely oncology, rare disease, and a couple others, quite complex. So now let's shift gears and talk a bit about your lead program, where you are right now, and also what other treatment options exist for your lead indication. Sure. Our lead program is in primary mitochondrial myopathies. These are a group of heterogeneous gene defects within the mitochondrial or the nuclear DNA that prevent the mitochondria from doing their job, again, creating ATP. About 80% of the patients with PMM have a defect in their mitochondrial genome, and about 20% have a defect in their nuclear genome. We're studying currently the larger group, so the 80% or so that have, of adults that have gene mutations in their mitochondrial genome. And by default, these patients have lack of endurance or activity. And so our clinical studies, one of our key endpoints in the study, our primary endpoint is how far they can walk over a period of time pre and post treatment. So that's your proxy for I'm providing a benefit. I'm able to ramp up the production of the mitochondrial energy production and they can walk further by treating your drug. We are running a study that's an international to global pivotal phase 2B study. We're doing it in 14 countries, 34 sites around the world. We'll enroll approximately 200 patients into the study. All are adults, all have a any of the mutations, alterations, deletions in the mitochondrial genome, and all phenotypically kind of look the same. They all walk about six to 700 meters of distance in a 12-minute walk test, which is less than half that a healthy person could do. So we've generally credited to keep a heterogeneous group of gene mutations, but really created a homogeneous group, phenotypically group of patients to study in a clinical trial. And being that this is your lead program, I'm curious how you think about indication selection for an early stage biotech and you know, threading that needle between you know, getting value from your first program and then how that ties to any future assets that you're thinking about developing or other indications that you pursue. Yeah. So having an agonist to the PPAR Delta pathway, there are probably 20 different uses you could have for that. In fact, there's another company also in, in the California area developing a similar PPAR Delta for a group of rare liver diseases because you have fat accumulation. And obviously if this product can eat up fats to create energy, you're going to reduce the fat accumulation that can be toxic in the body. So there are a number of uses in neuromuscular, in the liver, in the heart, and other indications. And I think for us, when we were going through 
trying to decide where you start, it became pretty clear. And we know this product can increase the productivity of mitochondria to produce ATP. And we know that that lack of production of energy is a primary outcome of mitochondrial disease. And there's nothing approved for PMM. So for our lead indication PMM, there's nothing approved anywhere in the world. And I know physicians have tried supplements to help these patients, but nothing has helped to offset that lack of energy production to date. And it gives us an opportunity then to go after the be first to market in a sizable patient population that there is a strong unmet medical need with a molecule whose biology is all about increasing productivity out of the organelles that those patients have problem creating energy from. So it's almost a perfect fit. That's how we started. There are knowing that the product can increase the metabolism of fatty acids. We're also exploring similar diseases like fatty acid oxidation disorder, where you have a gene defect, a monogenic gene defect in an enzyme that breaks down dietary fats. So it's a different disease with a different acronym, but phenotypically the patients look the same. If you exercise them within just a few minutes, they completely hit a wall and run out of energy. You know, they have a very similar phenotype. So we're actually pursuing that as a second opportunity. Talk to us a little bit about patient access, particularly for rare diseases. You know, I've been involved in rare disease drug development as well, and it can be quite challenging accessing the right patients, particularly in late stage pivotal trials. Curious how you guys approach this problem and any interesting new innovations that you're excited by around access to patients, particularly for clinical trials. In the perspective of orphan drug development, the majority of the patients that are diagnosed in the U.S. end up going through, and again, this is not uncommon for many new products in orphan diseases, but they go through a long diagnostic journey because their primary care physician can't solve the problem. They get referred to a specialist. In the case of our lead indication PMM, a lot of people have neuromuscular issues. So they often go to a, a neurologist who will then spend years with them ruling out other diseases or conditions. And eventually they'll get sent to a genetic specialist because they can't find the problem. And after a several long year journey and getting a genetic test, they can find that there's a, for example, large deletion in a certain enzyme that shuttles long chain fats across the mitochondrial membrane. And this is the reason why they're unable to produce energy. So for designing and executing clinical studies, we are challenged with the concentration of these patients in academic institutions. Many of them are in academic institutions, which sometimes is hard to get to. The other is genetic confirmation. So for us and for many orphan disease companies, you, the definitive diagnosis is reliant upon genetic confirmation. And until the last decade or so, that had to be done through a biopsy. You would have to get a sample of tissue. And as you can imagine most patients aren't really willing to give a sample of skeletal muscle or other biopsy piece to find a definitive diagnosis for a disease for which there's no treatment. That's changed dramatically with genetic testing. And now we can do essentially everything with blood and saliva that you could do with a sample of muscle in the past. And that really changes things for us and for many companies that are out developing drugs. Mm. And on that point about the change that is going on in biotech right now, and particularly given the capital markets, and we talked a little bit about this, where there's over 200 companies now that are trading under you know, cash value. How is the current environment impacting how you approach execution against these clinical programs? And any advice you have for other leaders to navigate the current times? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. This is probably in my career, the third cycle I've seen like this. The good news is it is a cycle and it's about navigating through the cycle. We and many of those 200 plus companies have to make real hard decisions over what we develop and what we don't. Every company has more opportunity to explore than they have cash 
to deliver on. So I say the first thing you have to do is understand which one of your programs or which couple of your programs can unlock some value and create some interest from shareholders because eventually you will have to raise money again. It's one thing that's a commonality in our industry is you never have enough money as a small biotech company and we're constantly raising money. And that's just the cycle that's created. My general advice for folks are be less sensitive to dilution early on in this marketplace, be more sensitive to cash to get to your meaningful milestones. What feels like just enough cash is probably not just enough cash and having a little extra is probably better. And be honest with the investment community around your plans and your execution and when and if you may want to raise capital again, because I think credibility is also important. Be a very credible executive in the industry and under-promise and over-deliver as it relates to timelines and cash spend. Great advice. And one that, that we don't hear often enough is around credibility, particularly in times like this, because it is very much a long life and we all probably have a couple more biotechs in us. So great point there, Greg. Now thinking a bit about the future of the sector and what's ahead for us, particularly in rare disease drug development, what are things that we should be thinking about as it relates to the development of rare disease assets, given the current environment, some of the recent regulatory and legislative changes, and anything else that, that comes to mind? That's a lot to unpack. So I think we've seen in the past several months approvals of drugs through the orphan division or through other divisions of the FDA for rare conditions off of data that maybe historically wouldn't have gotten approvals for these drugs, which tells you right from the beginning that we're seeing a shift, at least from a regulatory perspective, that the FDA is becoming a little more open to being creative around drug products that are safe, that must be safe and tolerable as a foundation, but have good but not great efficacy data for the purpose of getting them to patients in need. That's actually a very, very good sign. So I think that will help give investors confidence in investing in programs they may not have invested in previously. So I think that's a positive thing. We're also hearing rumors about using single arm studies for approval, maybe using some historical data or some AI induced placebo arm to give you some idea of what a cohort of patients, untreated patients may look like. So the exploration and the desire to look for alternatives to placebo-controlled studies in which you're talking populations of patients in the thousands, I think is a very good sign as well from regulators. One area that's maybe not the most positive for orphan drug development is the implementation of the IRA, which in some aspects, it has good intentions as it relates to cutting healthcare costs but has some bad consequences as it relates to particularly orphan products that quite often have the potential to treat a series of related indications or diseases, but make it a challenge now for companies to make an investment in second or third indications for the product. And in fact, this then conflicts with the Orphan Drug Act, which is much older and been out much longer, and that is to create incentives for companies to take risk to develop indications for these small populations. So I do think the Inflation Reduction Act needs some modification to be more useful, and I'm hoping to see that over the coming years, but it does create some barriers for companies like Reneo and many others that could develop multi-indication products but are worried about the implications as it relates to future revenue and drug pricing. Thanks for sharing that perspective, Greg. I'm curious in terms of company culture currently, particularly in a, imagine a post-COVID world here, 
What are some of the silver linings from your perspective from the pandemic and evolution of culture in biotech? And where are areas where you still see room for improvement? As all industries and all companies experienced for a couple of years, working remotely, not being by your team members, not being collaborative, working by Zoom or phone calls, it was nice for the first few months, I think, for many people. And then those that really thrive on face-to-face interaction and working in teams and solving problems on a real-time basis realize that you can't solve issues real-time with Zoom. You just can't get five people on Zoom at a heartbeat notice. So I'll tell you our perspective. So we, like many offices, were closed for a portion of the COVID pandemic. Several employees still came to the office because they wanted to have interactions. They wanted to be away from the home setting. We allow people to work hybrid or in the office setting. We let you know that if you come in on a regular basis, you'll have a dedicated desk or dedicated office. If you're here less than three days a week, then you'll float around. Most employees like to be in the office at least three or four days a week. So I know that's different. Every city is different. Every geography is different. Every part of the world is different. For us here in Southern California, we have a pretty flexible work environment. People come and go as they please, but I'm pleased to see that most people actually show up three or four days a week, which is a really nice thing to see. Yeah, certainly. Great. Greg, before we let you run, would like to ask you to reflect for a minute and given all that you've talked about in terms of what you've seen and your past experiences, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self knowing all that you now know and have experienced? Yeah. And by the way, I thank you for prepping for this question earlier before free on the call. I think the one thing that I would guide based on hindsight is in this industry, take as many opportunities as you can. Don't be worried about title or pay in the first you know, 10 or 15 years of your life. Try to be around in the room where it happens, so they speak, in the discussions that happen at all aspects of the company, whether it's the R&D organization or the G&A organization or the commercial organization. Try to experience as much as you can in your first 10 or 15 years in the industry because it will only set a foundation for you to be whatever you want to be, so to speak, in the next phase of your career. It really sets that foundation. So take that sales assignment, take that lateral move into finance or a business planning role or strategic role or a project manager role. The more experience you can get and the more you can learn about drug development from the bench to the patients to commercializing and getting the product reimbursed and in some cases, even funding companies and telling the story to investors to help fund your next company. I think all those experiences make you a more well-rounded executive in this industry. Well, Greg, on the heels of that salient advice, thanks for joining us today, for sharing the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Reneo and wishing you continued success as you navigate these dynamic times. Thank you, Raul. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.